Thanks for listening to the Granary Church Podcast. For more information, head to granary.org.au or follow us on social media at The Granary Church. Thanks, Theo. This one acknowledge um, Leslie Theo because he came up with a vision for Good Friday. If you're here on Good Friday, just want to thank you, Theo, for that. It was great. Uh, some people did ask me how long it took him to write that script. Well, actually, the script is about, what, 700 years old. It actually is a medieval script, which is amazing. It means that the message of the gospel has, does not change. It's not a message that evolves. It stays the same. And 2,000 years later, we're t- still preaching the same message. I find that... I was just watching it on Friday thinking how amazing that 700 years ago someone we don't know but a brother or sister in the Lord wrote that and we get to see that same story. But also want to thank so many people. You see people in here performing but there's people doing registrations and organisation that was massive and I just want to thank everyone for that. It took a lot of people to make that happen, a lot of people who love Jesus and who give a lot of time of themselves to um, enable others to come. I'm sorry if you missed out, if you missed out on registering. Some people have missed out on getting to this celebration today because um, we just legally can't fit more people in here. So I'm sorry about that. And so, but I do encourage you, if you go on and you miss out on, well, you couldn't on Friday, there was no more um, services to register for, but generally um, you can find another one that you could fit into. So, um, Try that. Try another time of the day. So um, this morning we get to celebrate the resurrection. Uh, I just love it. I love to encourage people to think of the Easter weekend as an entire package of celebration. It's not just Good Friday or Easter Day. It's it's so beautiful to celebrate the whole thing. It's such a profound thing. And um, every year when it comes to preaching um, for the resurrection, it's so much. I have to really say to the Lord, what is the thing this year? Because there is so, it's so dense. It's so amazing, this this whole, um, the reality of Jesus and the resurrection from the dead. And I believe that he wants to speak to each one of us today. And so I'd love to pray so that we can all invite him because he longs for us to partner with him in this. So, Father, thank you so much for your presence here today and thank you for all of us who are gathered here today, not by mistake, but drawn here by your Holy Spirit, whether we have been acquainted with you yet or not, you've brought us here. And so, Lord, I pray you'll speak to each one of us today. Thank you. Thank you that you love us. And may we have a greater understanding of that today. In Jesus' name. Amen. There are seven features of human life and experience that are common to all peoples and all cultures, and you know them. They seem, these are things that seem to point beyond themselves to the meaning of life and existence because we have them intrinsically built into us. They are freedom, beauty, truth, power, justice, love, and spirituality. And as you're born and you grow up, no one has to teach you to long for those things. They're just there. No one says to a child, teaches a child at two or three, I'm going to teach you about what's fair. Somehow they work that out. They work out that's not fair very, very quickly without a lesson that says that's not fair. No one has to teach us that we long to be loved. We feel rejection from a very early age. No one said this is what you need to feel if you're going to feel loved. You you know it. No one has to teach us of our longing for beauty. 
there is something in us that just yearns for beauty. I remember when I was a child and we'd go on holidays into the country and when it's beautiful, it's beautiful. But I remember sometimes you'd pull over for some reason to the side of the road and it was gravel. I just remember hating that gravel. There's something really ugly about just gravel where, you know, I've got this thing about stormwater drains if you ever built them. I was in a pastor's meeting once and I said my thing about stormwater drains and one of the pastors said, before I was a pastor, I was an engineer with the water board and I built stormwater drains. I said, <laughs> sorry, I disagree with you. I know nothing about why we have to have them. But when my kids were little, every time we drove over one, I'd say, this was once a beautiful creek running through this place. <laughs> and someone destroyed it and turned it into a stormwater drain. And they call it drains. <laughs> I hate that. So anyway. But I'm not here to preach about stormwater drains. But, you know, when you go up to the Hunter Valley and because there's been so much rain, everyone comments on the fact that it's green. Everyone says that. Oh, it's so green. And we can all see it's green. So you didn't need the person decide, beside you to say, oh, it's so green. And you go, oh, I hadn't noticed that. Because we, you just love the fact that it's green. And there's something in us that loves beauty. So all these things are something about the point to the meaning of life and existence. They point it that there is something that everyone yearns for. And yet all these things are the things that we mess up all the time. Even though we love them and even though we want them, we mess them up. No one has to tell us that we want loving relationships, but we mess them up all the time. And the closer we are to people, the more we mess them up. No one has to tell us that forgiveness is a powerful thing, but we don't want to do it because it seems unjust or something. No one has to tell us that there is a spiritual world out there. Even those who say they don't believe in it will respect other people's spiritual beliefs. And you even hear in things like when there was the storming of the Capitol in America, there was journalists talked about being in the hallowed halls. It's not a place of worship. But we use these spiritual terms because they mean something to us. We'll respect Aboriginal spiritual sites. So everyone would do that. No one would would denigrate that. So there's something in us that believes in that there is more than what we can see. We long for justice and truth. It's all, but we ruin it all the time. It's the constant problem of being human is that there's these things that we try to reach for and try to grasp, but we just can't grab hold of them. It's like, you know, when you have a dream and you're trying to run in the dream and you just can't run. It's a little bit like that. We just can't grasp it. And so N.T. writes, writes this, as Jesus goes to the cross, these are precisely the issues that are at stake, those seven issues that I just said, beauty, justice, truth, power, spirituality, love. These are the things that are at stake. His intention from all eternity to come and live in his own world with his human creatures was gloriously and shockingly fulfilled when he came to the place of pain and sorrow, of justice denied, power corrupted, truth sneered at and love trampled on. That's what you see in the cross. Pain and sorrow, justice denied, power corrupted, truth sneered at and love trampled on. All those things that we so earnestly desire in their broken form came against Jesus and nailed him to the cross. Because all those things that we so earnestly desire but have fallen short of, what, of the beauty and glory of God is what sin is all about. And all of those things, Jesus absorbed them all and he didn't fight them. It says that he loved until the end. 
When those things come upon us as human beings, we get filled with hate, bitterness, revenge, jealousy, anger, all those things come out of us. But with Jesus, when they all came upon him, love, more and more and more love, his true character and the true character and nature of God was revealed because as they came upon him, more and more love came out. And it says in the Scriptures, he loved until the end. And even as he hung on the cross dying under the injustice of all of this, He said from the cross, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Love came out of him from the end. His true nature was revealed. When we go under pressure from all these things, our true nature is revealed as well. Your true nature is revealed and my true nature is revealed when these things, the injustices of the world happen against us. And when they happened against Jesus, his true nature was revealed. And so when you look at this image of Jesus on the cross, what you're actually looking at is a battle. It's a battle raging here. It doesn't look like a battle. It could look a little bit like defeat. It could look like simply pain and sorrow and death. But what you're seeing here is something that's happening in the spiritual realm. It's a battle. It's a battle that's being fought to the very end here. And this battle is against all these things that hold us back from becoming fully human and fully alive the people that we were called to be. Someone had to absorb all the sin of the world and beat the powers of darkness because whether we believe it or not, there are spiritual powers in this world that hold people captive. And you may not believe that, but you actually know it. You may not say you believe it, but you actually know it. And that's the very reason that we can't grasp those things that we try to grasp because we live under a ruler of this world who does not want us to do that who doesn't want us to become the image of God that we are called to become because we're created in his image. All those things, those freedom, beauty, truth, power, justice, love and spirituality are all found in Jesus. They're all found in him and that's we're created in his image and that's who we're called to be in his image. So when you look at this battle, there's a lot of battles going on. I want to read you some passages of scripture and you'll see all those things, truth, beauty, power, love in this passage. We could do seven messages out of this one passage, but I just want to focus on one thing and see the battle for power that is actually happening on the day that Jesus was crucified, or the day of day of Jesus' trial, leading up to his leading up to his crucifixion. As I'm reading from John 18 through to John 19, it's a bit, little bit of a long passage, but I just want you to see the battle for power that is happening in this. And so Jesus is standing before Pilate, who was the governor, and he is questioning Jesus. And it says this, Pilate then went back inside the palace and summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? So what you're going to, what I want you to look out for now is the language of kingdoms and power. And it's here straight away. Are you the king of the Jews? So you've got Pilate who was a ruler talking to Jesus saying, are you a ruler? Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you've done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. So there's a battle going on here. There's kingdoms starting to come up against each other. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Jesus brings in this idea of kingdoms here. Pilate knows it's about kingdoms and Jesus is saying, you can see my kingdom because if if my kingdom were of this world, in other words, like all the other kingdoms around here, my followers would start fighting with swords, but they're not. My kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. 
Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. So here's another power statement that's coming in, another kingdom statement that's coming in. Everyone who is on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth, retorted Pilate. And with this he went out again to the Jews gathered there and he said, I find no basis for a charge against him. And at this point, Pilate, who is a ruler, is starting to get a little bit concerned because he understands power and authority. And he's starting to see a power and authority here that he doesn't quite get. And he's a little bit nervous about what's happening here. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. And here's an interesting thing that happened. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they clothed him in a purple robe. And here we have the image of a king. And they went up to him again, again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they slapped him in the face. Here's this war of kingdoms happening. Once more Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I'm bringing you out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. So Pilate's saying, I really, I really don't want to be part of this. There's something going on here and I'm not sure what it is, but I don't want to be part of it. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. In other words, he's, he's washing his hands of his saying, if you want to do this, you do this, but I'm not going to be part of this. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law. According to the law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. So what you have here is three powers warring against each other. You have the power of the Romans, which is political power. You have the power of the Jewish religion, which is the religious power. And you have the power of the kingdom of God. And they're all clashing together right here. And it's the, uh, the big religion and the big politics coming together and they're trying to fight, trying so hard to fight the kingdom of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. It's interesting that Pilate, the governor, with this man who was just, as some would say, as some thought, just a Jewish rabbi, Pilate is afraid because Pilate sensed that there's a bigger battle going on here. He knows this. And he went back inside the palace Where do you come from? He asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said, don't you realise I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Pilate's aware of his power, but Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. And Jesus' confidence in his own power and his own authority and his own kingdom is very unsettling for Pilate. And from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king. Interesting because just before that, Pilate said, here is the man. And now he says, here is your king. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. And as N.T. Wright says, and it all ends up with the Roman soldiers turning Jesus into a parody of a king, a scarecrow figure in purple robe and crown of thorns. We run this world 
Caesar has won the Game of Thrones and this is what we think of other would-be royalty. And this is the battle that's raging and they think they can kill him. They think they can destroy him by nailing him to the cross. But this is what we see with Jesus dying on the cross. Jesus dies embodying God's justice crushed by injustice, the incarnation of God's love rejected by human hatred, God's freedom dying the death of the slave, God's beauty defaced, marred beyond imagining, God's truth in the world of lies, God's power in human weakness, God's presence in the paradox of apparent God-forsakenness. He absorbs all that upon himself. And so when you look at this image, you see a war raging because he is the sinless God absorbing it all into himself. Without the resurrection, the cross means that the chaos monsters have won again. Jesus becomes just another failed Messiah. But with the resurrection, the entire scripturally based kingdom agenda which Jesus was putting into action and which the Gospels all display is retrospectively validated. The crucifixion is seen to be what Jesus said it would be, the victory over all the powers of darkness. So Jesus absorbs all these things which kill. They kill us. They destroy us. But he beats them through the resurrection. Death could not hold him down. And what's happening here is that the disciples on the day of the resurrection, they're a bit confused, but by the time the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them in the day of Pentecost, they'll look back. Have you ever had a situation in life where you look back and you put pieces into place and you suddenly realise what was happening? It becomes apparent. And this is what's happening to them now. They've walked with Jesus for three years. They've seen him die and when he died they thought it was all over. They see him being raised from the dead and they're totally confused but then they meet him and then he pours his Holy Spirit upon them after he ascends into heaven and suddenly it all starts to become apparent as what it, to what, it was, what was happening. And that's why N.T. Wright writes this, the entire scripturally based kingdom agenda which Jesus was putting into action and which the Gospels all display, is retrospectively validated. Let's read it again because there's something profound in this. The entire scripturally based kingdom agenda, which Jesus was putting into action and which the Gospels all display, is retrospectively validated. In other words, to look at it quite simply, when Jesus was walking around with the disciples, he would go up to someone, for instance, with leprosy and a person with a leper was someone who was regarded as unclean. You didn't touch them because if you touched them, their disease would be transferred to you. So they had to walk around often with a little bell saying unclean, unclean, so that people could walk around them. But Jesus walked right into their world and touched them. And rather than their uncleanness coming into him, his kingdom power went into them and they were healed. So wherever Jesus went, he reversed the curse. When he went to Lazarus, who have just been singing about, he was raised from the dead. When he went to a man with a withered arm, his arm was healed. When there was no food, food appeared. When, the, when there was only water left at a wedding, it turned into wine. When there was a storm that was raging, he made it peaceful. Everywhere he went, he's, this is his kingdom agenda. The kingdom of God is coming into the world and they didn't realise that's what they were seeing. They were seeing another power come into the world beyond all the powers that they were used to, the powers of sickness and death, the powers of, of being marginalised. He took the people who were marginalised and on the fringes and he brought them back into the centre of the fold. 
He forgave sins. He restored people. He made them whole again. And people loved following him because they saw this new kingdom power coming into the world. Wherever he goes, he reverses the curse. And that's why it says his kingdom agenda, which he was putting into action, is retrospectively validated. They suddenly understand what it all means. He's bringing the power of the kingdom of God. And when he died on the cross and rose again, it was the massive defeat of all those powers of death which hold us all down, all those things that hold us back from being attaining that glorious perfection that we all long for in our hearts. But we can never find it by ourselves. We've tried and tried and we can never find it. And so on the day of Pentecost, when the the 120 people who were in this upper room waiting, as Jesus told them to do, the Holy Spirit came upon them and suddenly it all makes sense to them, to the 120 of them, men and women in this upper room, flooded out onto the streets and they started sharing this good news. And Peter, the Apostle Peter who preached that day, who was the follower of Jesus, who actually denied him the day, the day before he was crucified, suddenly as he looks back it all becomes apparent. He saw The kingdom of God was coming into the world and we didn't quite get it. And so he says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you. He was accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs. In other words, we could see this happening, this outplay of the kingdom of God coming into the world, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. You know this, you saw it. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And so what we read in 2 Corinthians 5.21 is this, God made him, that is Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now read that again. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Now sometimes people think that Jesus died and rose again so that we would have a ticket to heaven. Now Jesus died and rose again and if you put your faith and trust in him, you can be assured of eternal life with him. That is part of it. But it's so much more. It doesn't say that. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might go to heaven. It's not what it says. It says so that we might become something. It wasn't just to give us a pass. It was so that you would be changed. So it's like, um, you know, I can give you a ticket to go to see something or I could, say, take Graham, my husband, for instance. I give him a ticket to go and see Frozen or he could be transformed to become the lead character in the play. Singing, and everyone thinks that's a miracle, but I think it's quite possible. <laughs> There's a difference. Do you want a ticket to watch or do you want to become a character? Because God's calling you to become someone, to become the righteousness of God. You see, people think that Adam and Eve's failure in the Garden of Eden when the enemy came to tempt them was a moral failure. But it was actually a vocational and identity failure that they had. Firstly, they didn't understand. God created human beings in his own likeness and he commissioned us to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth with his glory and his beauty and his power and his freedom and his love and his justice and everything to do with him. That was over our vocation or our calling. They missed it. And secondly, our identity. They were created as son or daughter of the living God. 
And what happens when we lose those two things to understand our calling, that we were created to become the righteousness of God, to bring his power and his glory into the world. When we miss that and we miss our identity, we spend our whole life scrambling to be someone and to find something that we can do to make our existence valid. And that's what people on the earth are doing, every generation, scrambling to be someone and to validate our existence. But when we find Jesus, he makes us the righteousness of God, which means that our calling becomes clear. And it's more than the job you do, it's who you are. It's the righteousness of God. It's more than the gifts and the talents that you have, it's the righteousness of God. And your identity as the son or daughter of the living God is secure. You don't no longer need people to give you your identity. You have it in Jesus. And that's why we read this, Jesus in Galatians 1.4. And I've saved this one to now because if I read this at the start, people misunderstand what this is saying. Jesus gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Because we look and think, well, you know, not everyone's evil. It's not saying that, but we think that's what it says. Not everyone's evil. And like, well, yeah, there are bad things happening in the world, but there's some really good things. That's not what it's saying. It's not working out what's good and bad. As we said right from the start, we all long for these things of truth and freedom and beauty and justice and love and and good power, etc. And we can never attain it because we live in an evil age and we are never going to get it. And it's like constantly banging your head against a wall and never getting somewhere. And my, my saying is if you're banging your head against a wall, a brick wall, maybe you should take a step to the right or the left and find the door. And it's the same with people here that we're banging our heads for 2,000 years against a brick wall. And all we need to do is take a step to the right or left and find Jesus is the door into eternal life. It's all we need to do. And so he's came to rescue us from this present evil age to open the, he said, I am the way. Come through. You can come through. Follow me. And you'll find all those things that your heart is yearning for. And so in Romans 8, we, re- we read this. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's the first thing that you discover when you put your faith and trust in Jesus. He is for you and nothing can be against you. Honestly, that is the most wonderful relief. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. No one condemns you. Do you realise that? No one condemns you. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. You've got God who gave his son to die for you. Christ is sitting at his right hand interceding for you. No one condemns you. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us or as some, some translations use, victory or victorious. And if there's victory, there has to have been a battle that is won, a battle that's been won above all these things. And that's why we read 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So all that life that you struggled to find your identity, to find your calling, to, to find beauty and truth and justice, and you never quite made it. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In other words, we've all, we all constantly miss the mark of being who in our hearts we know we are called to be. But when we come to Jesus, 
We die to that old life, trying to look after ourselves, build ourselves up, and we're filled with him. And it says the old you has passed away and the new has come. That's why it's a new birth and it grows. You don't become fully like Jesus on the first day. You grow to become like him. It's a new life has come. The old you struggling and straining to do it by yourself becomes the new you. The old you that struggled to forgive starts to learn to forgive. The old you that didn't have hope starts to find hope. The old you that wondered who you were discovers who you really are. The old you that didn't know what your meaning and purpose in life was discovers it. The old you that felt alone discovers you're not alone anymore because a new you has come. That's what we find in Jesus and that's why we say with Christians throughout the years, I've been crucified with Christ Galatians 2.20, it's no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. And when Jesus was crucified, remember that all those things that came against him, he continued to love. His character came out because as we follow him, regardless of what happens in the world, love is forced out of us because he lives in us. That's the people that we become. And so our vocation is far more than your job, far more than your gifts or talents. We are called to be people of justice in a world of injustice, of truth in a world of lies, of beauty in a world of ugliness, of genuine spirituality, bringing heaven and earth together in a world of Gnosticism and other counterfeits. We're called to be people of freedom in a world of slavery, of the right sort of power, the power of healing love in a world of brute force, of love itself in a world of suspicion and hatred. Because Jesus, the ultimate image of God, dies in our place to rescue us from our sins in order to rob the dark powers of their grip, which prevents us being fruitful in their creator's new creation purposes. There is a power that is preventing us from being fruitful in the creator's new creation purposes. And when we give our lives to Jesus and we're filled with his Holy Spirit, which is very his very presence, we start to become fruitful in his new creation purposes. That's the people that we're called to be. And this demands a response. I read a story of a a French bishop and he tells the story about um, a a young priest who had three boys who kept coming to confession and um, making stuff up and making a joke of it and running away and mocking it. And uh, one day he caught one of the boys who was a Jewish boy and uh, he said to this Jewish boy, I want you to go and look at this image of Jesus on the cross. I want you to say, you died for me and I don't care. Three times. And the boy went and he looked at the image of Jesus on the cross and he said, you died for me and I don't care. And then he said it a second time and on the third time he couldn't say it and he started to weep and he gave his life to Christ and he's serving him today. And the bishop said, and the reason I know that story is true is because that was me. I was that boy. This demands a response. In Acts 2, I read a little bit of what Peter was saying to the people on that day, and this is the response. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? How shall we respond? Now, your response is important because, you know, when Jesus was walking the earth, he responded to people who wanted to walk with him, to work with him. So he would say to someone who was blind, what do you want me to do for you? And people would think, well, isn't it obvious he can't see? But Jesus won't impose himself upon you. You have to want him. You have to want him. So we have to respond and everyone responds in some way. 
Peter replied, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God would call, will call. Now, repent, we sometimes think of as saying sorry, but it's bigger than sorry. Then we hear it as meaning turning around, which is it's a more accurate translation, which means to change the way you're living, to turn around, like I'm walking this way and now I'm going to walk this way. But another way, to, to, another way of translating is to respond. You have to respond. And all of us will respond to this message today. All of us will respond in some way, like people responded to Jesus when he was walking on the face of the earth. They either hated him, rejected him, were unsure about him, or gave their lives to him. And each, each one of those is a response. Pilate washed his hands of him. Soldiers crucified him. Mary and John and others stayed at the foot of the cross. Everyone responded in some way. The salt, one, of the, one of the people being crucified next to him, one of the men next to him said, asked him for salvation and he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Everyone responds. He will not force himself upon you but one day we will all stand before him. Everyone responds. And so today we all need to look at our response I can't say we all need to respond because we are already responding. We just need to look at our response and be true to ourselves and true to God in our response because this is the secret, this is the key to life. The Bible says that in his presence is fullness of joy. This is the way to become that person. You know, sometimes those dreams of the justice and truth and beauty, etc. it's like a distant childhood memory that you just long to grab back because you're created for it. You created to be a person who brings all those beautiful things into the world. So let's close our eyes for a moment. And, you know, if, you, if you're here today and you just love Jesus, you just love him and you love all that he's done for you, then just spend a moment just to thank him, just to thank him for making you, for dying for you, for letting you know him. It had nothing to do with you. He pursued you with his goodness and mercy. Thank him from the depth of your heart that you have life and you have eternal life. If you're here today and you long to know him, then you can respond to him by saying, Lord, I repent of my sins. I would love to be baptised in your name and be filled with your Holy Spirit and become the person I was intended to be from before time began to fulfil my calling to have the identity that you created for me you can respond to him today let's all stand together because it's like when um someone of importance comes into a room we stand and I think it's good on Easter day to stand in acknowledgement of the king of kings and lord of lords the god who revealed his true nature by coming into the world in the form of a person he took his sin as the sin of the world upon himself and revealed what true love really is stand and honour him. We thank you, Father. You care. You just care for us. And you give us eternal life.